Thank you all for joining us this evening. We are in the middle of our series on the wisdom books of the Bible. So if you have been keeping track, last week we actually finished up Proverbs, and so today we will be moving into Ecclesiastes. This is the first of what will be, I think, uh, three total lessons that we'll do on Ecclesiastes. Uh, I'll do the, my job today is to introduce the book for you, to give you a framework for how to think through some of the really challenging things uh, throughout this book. And then uh, Pastor Tom and Sydney will have the subsequent lessons to go deeper into a lot of the themes that I will be introducing today. So uh, one of the things to keep in mind as we dive in is that, you know, like, I think we've done a really good job in the series so far highlighting some of the really challenging pieces of wisdom throughout the wisdom books. The ones that make us think, is that actually wisdom? That's, that's good advice? Um, and trying to put it uh, into a, a wider context of the great things God is doing in the world. So just for now, for Ecclesiastes, imagine taking all of those difficult Proverbs and pieces of wisdom that we've covered so far, put it all into one book and make that book about exactly those challenging things. That's what we're doing with Ecclesiastes. So let me introduce you to how this challenge often shows up. So these are the opening verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, it starts, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Okay, that sounds great. This is off to be a great start. Immediately, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. What? Utterly meaningless. What is? Everything is meaningless. Those are the first few verses. And I got to tell you, the whole book is like this. It's only going to get more like this from here. That's the challenge that we're dealing with for the next several weeks. It's gonna, we're going to have to sit with the, uh, the voices that we're hearing uh, throughout this text. So, um, you know, they, this kind of book really brings into sharp focus some of these other questions that we've been asking throughout Wisdom, which is like these deep questions of what does it mean to be human? What is the purpose of humanity? What's the point? So not only is that a question that this book asks, it is also a question that we ask of this book. So we'll be trying to capture uh, both of those things. The, we'll do it in uh, a few different ways um, because these, the reflections in this book can be so hard to deal with that a lot of preachers and teachers and interpreters over the centuries uh, often just avoid it altogether. It does not get quoted from as much as some of the other books uh, in the Bible do. And often when it does get quoted, sometimes it is completely out of context. Sometimes it's made to say exactly the opposite of what the text itself seems to be saying. It's so challenging to, to quote Ecclesiastes to make a point that not even the New Testament writers themselves do it. This is one of the few books that are not quoted in the New Testament, further raising the questions like, what is, what is this book even about? Um, in this text, it can be very difficult to hear God's voice, to hear what God is saying through the text. But what I would say is to hear God's voice, I think it's, it'll help to do the few things that we're going to do in the introduction today. So first, we're going to try to hear the voice of the writer and to understand what their perspective is 
and why they have that perspective. So we're going we're gonna to follow the author through their own logic for why they're saying the things that we're saying. And then, once we've done that, I think we'll be in a better position to make decisions on what to do with the reflections in Ecclesiastes. So let's start with this first question of whose voice do we hear in the text? And it will, be, it will become clear why it's so important for us to get a grip on who is talking and, uh, and all of the, the different perspectives that are being put forward in the book. So the, the book itself, the name of the book, can either be Kohelet or Ecclesiastes, the former being the Hebrew name for it, the latter being the, uh, the Greek name for it. They, this, uh, these words can be translated in English as the teacher, the preacher, the leader of the assembly. All of those are different phrases that are used. If, if you recognize the connection between the, calling it the leader of the assembly and ecclesiastes, so the Greek word ecclesia means church. So this is the idea of the leader of the person convening over the gathering of God's people. I am going to call the person whose voice is reflected here, I'm going to call them the teacher uh, throughout the text. And uh, let's see, uh, let's try to understand more of where the teacher is coming from. So This is how the text begins. You already saw, we saw the very opening line, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. And then a few verses later, this this person, the teacher themselves, uh, offers some what looks like autobiographical reflections. They, They describe themselves. They say, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then just a few verses later says, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. Uh, so I think if, you, if you're familiar with the wisdom series so far, you might have a hypothesis for who that could be describing. Uh, I'll, we can share even more about this, this autobiographical perspective that, that the teacher offers. They say, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. And then they finish this reflection by saying, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Who could that describe, right? Like they, they got to be a king. They have to have amassed an enormous amount of wealth, a uh, large harem. It seems like, of course, it would be talking about King Solomon. And that is often who we all interpreters over the centuries have ascribed the book to. And that is also ascribing the book to Solomon is a big part of why interpreters have struggled to make sense of the advice in the book for so long, because you could ask the question, does that sound like stuff Solomon would say? The Solomon I know would not be saying meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless um, throughout. But in fact, like we try often to bucket 
uh, Solomon into, like, try to make him work to fit with this text. Often, you may have actually seen this, this construction of how Solomon's works and perspectives fit. They get played out in the Bible. So there's, there's kind of a folk wisdom that goes, oh, uh, Solomon wrote Song of Songs in his youth before he had amassed a harem, back when he had just one wife. It was a simpler time when he was in love with one woman, and the whole book is a, it's a love poem back and forth between him and this woman before life got complicated with the hundreds of wives and the harem on top of that. You know how it is. Very relatable stuff. And then it goes, oh, but then... In Middle Age, when Solomon had amassed some wisdom and experience, then we get Proverbs, some of the greatest literature of wisdom that exists in the world. And then in his old age, when he had a chance to reflect on his life, he has a more uh, chastened view of the world, uh, one that is uh, a little less optimistic because of the, the experiences he has lived through. As, I don't know, as intuitive or interesting as that seems, there is no evidence that, that the books, those books should be organized that way at all. In fact, there's a lot of reasons to not uh, have that kind of framework when we're looking at this. The, um, the, what, and what we're going to talk through specifically is about why, why we shouldn't try so hard to make it that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. There are a lot of problems with that view. So first... Uh, where it, you know, in, the, in this opening verse where he said, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. So uh, if Solomon were the one saying this, who are some of the kings, who are all of the kings in the history over Jerusalem that this could apply to? So let's list them all out together. David. That's it. That's just one. That's it. Over Jerusalem. Saul, you know, that Saul pre, was a precursor to them actually being able to uh, reign from Jerusalem. So that doesn't really actually sound that impressive if, uh, if Solomon was writing this at this time. It doesn't really mean anything. It actually kind of doesn't. It breaks down in meaning for him to say, I, like, I'm the greatest king uh, over Jerusalem in wisdom. In fact, there's a, a clue to help us understand how this passage is functioning in another part of the Old Testament. So there are uh, books in the Old Testament called First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and they are telling a history of Israel from their time in the promised land to being exiled, to losing their foothold in the land under Babylonian captivity, and then trying to make sense of their time in exile, and then ultimately having an opportunity to go back to Israel after their time in exile is over. So during, like, from that perspective, from that vantage point of reflecting back uh, over the history of the, the kingdom, this is what First Chronicles says. The, it's describing a story in Solomon's life. It says, The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal splendor, such as no king over Israel ever had before. So now, again, even then, that phrase kind of sounds weird because nobody came, there were only uh, David and at most also Saul who came before Solomon. But the point is, rhetorically, they're writing this at the end of a reign of monarchs over Israel and then going into exile and then looking back at their history. This kind of statement makes sense if you're writing from a time in exile and you're reflecting back 
on Israel's great, the pinnacle of Israel's history, when they had a foothold in Jerusalem and they had the greatest wisdom in Solomon in the beginning. So what you see going on is that this, this passage more, or the Ecclesiastes channeling the persona of King Solomon, what it's trying to do is address concerns that occur for people who are in exile, looking back on their history, trying to make sense of what's going on. There is uh, also in, in the uh, the perspective too kind of shifts over the book of uh, over the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So we read some passages towards the beginning that sounded like they were very much from the perspective of a king, right? It had to be a very powerful king in Israel's history. So that is true. That does accurately describe <clears throat> those first couple chapters that we read. But as you see throughout the rest of Ecclesiastes, the being a king actually is not a big part of the teacher's perspective. In fact, later on in the book, it actually sounds like this is the voice of somebody who is very distant from the king. And in some parts, it actually seems like this is somebody who is opposed to the king. This is the perspective of a citizen or a subject within the kingdom. So for example, Ecclesiastes 8 says, obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say, to him, what are you doing? That's a little harder to think Solomon is like saying, treat me this way. It gets even harder a a little bit later where it says, but do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. This This sounds like somebody who is very skeptical of the king and the power that the king has. If this was Solomon, this is a super passive aggressive way of saying, don't talk about me behind my back, right? You get the idea that this, this book is trying to do, one of the things it's trying to do is channel a kingly persona to offer reflections from the vantage point of a king. But it is also gaining perspectives from other vantage points to offer reflections from those vantage points. So that channeling the persona of Solomon is, allows the, the story to be expansive in its scope, uh, from the king all the way down to all of the, the typical subjects that would be in the kingdom. And it's reflecting back on Israel's great past to try to reclaim God's ancient promises in the present. So the, all of this raises the question then, okay, so given all of these perspectives, what's the teacher's point? To help understand the teacher's point, now that we're no longer tied to the idea that it has to be one voice and the whole book has to be just King Solomon talking the whole time, we can ask the question, what voices do we hear? And this will be super helpful for us in diagnosing the reasons why the teacher offers the reflections that he does. There is, if you follow the, the um, tenses in the voices throughout the book, you can actually break out the whole story into two distinct voices, what we call the frame narrator and then the teacher themselves. The, uh, the frame narrator uh, is, is the one who actually introduces the teacher. So we read that in verse 1. And then there's this introduction, and then there's the teacher's voice that gets into the autobiographical part. And then the whole book is extended reflections from the teacher. And then at the end is an epilogue where the frame narrator returns and offers a perspective 
on everything that we've read so far. So I think one of the big challenges that interpreters have often uh, dealt with is they've tried to make both the frame narrator and the teacher the same person, try to make them consistent and make them say the same thing. But what I'm going to propose is if you let them each speak distinctly, I think you can actually unlock a way of making sense of the book that has much better payoff than, than the way that we've done it before. So now, just to, thinking about what the teacher's point is, there is this phrase that occurs four times throughout the whole book that is translated in a few different ways. I call it here throughout, throughout my talk, it's called, you can say it, the purpose of humanity or what's, what's the point of being a human, the point of humanity. It's also called, the, sometimes it's called the whole of man is to so on, right? So that means this text is, in fact, trying to offer some reflections on what the purpose of humanity is. There are three times that this phrase occurs throughout the teacher's speech. And then at the end, the frame narrator uses this phrase one last time as a summary of the whole book. So let's hear in the teacher's own words what the purpose of humanity is, okay? So the first time that this phrase shows up, the teacher says, I know that there's nothing better for them but to enjoy themselves and do what's good while they live. Moreover, this is the gift of God. The purpose of humanity is to eat, drink, and enjoy the results of their hard work. On the surface, it seems like, oh, okay, that's actually pretty nice. That kind of makes sense. Uh, life can be very challenging, so you should enjoy the simple things. And, I mean, often this has been uh, used as a defense of just consumerism in general. Like, that's a good thing. Like a pro-capitalist uh, little, little statement. Like, hey, you know, work hard. Make money. It's, that's the good life. Really, that's the, and that's, uh, that's what life is about. This, this is, is, seriously, this is how implicitly we end up reading this passage when we don't try to understand why the teacher is advising us to do this. So here's the thing. A few verses later, the teacher tells us why we should eat, drink, work hard, and be merry as part of the, the purpose of humanity. He says, all have the same spirit. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot for who can bring them to see what will happen after them. Does that sound as, as kind and simple and as optimistic as we were just reading? What Ecclesiastes, what the teacher is saying is that life is terrible and then you die. So you might as well just make the best of it while you can on your way out. That is far more macabre than how we typically uh, describe it. This is um, this type, this way of looking uh, at uh, um, uh, the teacher's advice occurs throughout the book. This is the recurring theme for why the teacher offers the advice that they do. Here is the next time that that phrase, the purpose of humanity shows up, where this time the teacher says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting. Now, again, you could be like, oh, that's, that's good advice, right? It's because we should mourn with those who mourn, right? We, uh, we, that is our theology. It's, it's the idea that if there's an injustice anywhere, there's injustice everywhere. We feel the pain of other people. No, it's just for death is the destiny of humanity or the purpose of humanity, the living should 
take this to heart. In other words, it's better to mourn because that is where you're headed anyway. Like that's, that's the offer, that's the perspective that he's offering. In other words, live, laugh now because you won't live, laugh, love in Sheol. That's, that's what he's saying here. Who knew that the author all along was not uh, actually uh, Solomon, but Debbie Downer in, the, in, in this process? So there, there is this, uh, th- this uh, additional perspective, again, laid on. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. You see, this is the perspective that they're offering. Death is the great equalizer for the teacher. It is the thing that drives all of their reflections throughout the rest of the book. And, it's, and we have to grapple with that to be able to put the teacher's advice in context. This, there's a, a perspective here, too, from the world of social psychology called terror management theory. It's a framework in psychology which really says that it operates from the premise that really human beings trying to make sense of the fact that we're all going to die, that we're aware of our mortality. That is the single driving factor behind literally everything we do. So that framework looks at, like it uses that lens to look at why cultures are set up the way that they are, why institutions are set up the way that they are, how we make sense of our world, why religions develop the way that they do. Ecclesiastes is very much operating from this premise of terror management theory. Death and its, and its uh, finality is the driving force behind how to make sense of your life. Once you realize that that is where the teacher is coming from, I actually think it, allow, it frees you up to actually uh, to evaluate and wrestle with some of the uh, questionable pieces of advice uh, the teacher gives in other parts of the book. So, for example... There is a reflection that uh, the teacher offers. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be too righteous, neither be too wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be too wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whatever fears, uh, whoever fears God will avoid all extremes." Now, this, like that to me, uh, I think interpreters, again, they have often found that this person cannot be saying, don't be too righteous or too wise, right? We just spend time in Proverbs basically saying, lady wisdom is the greatest thing to pursue ever at all costs. And now you're saying, don't, don't try too hard. But when you understand that death as an equalizer is the underlying premise that the teacher is working from, you get it, right? Why, tr- why kill yourself being righteous? You'll just die right? And don't be too foolish. You'll also die soon. You know what? Just keep in middle of the road. Avoid extremes. You should, we should resist the attitude of like, no, 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 this is really, it's a, it's a good message. It's telling you to avoid extremes. Don't be too righteous like the, uh, the leaders who oppose Jesus in Jesus's day. No, that's not what that's about. That's, that is not who they're describing. What this is saying is like, if you try too hard, in either way, you're going to wind up getting yourself killed. Does that sound like something Jesus would say, like, carry your cross and follow me, but don't 
follow too closely. I don't want you to wind up dead, right? I think we've gone a far away from the way that other writers uh, throughout the New Testament and Old Testament uh, frame following God. There, there's a, another, a, you can see this come up in other forms of uh, questionable advice. So here, um, uh, Ecclesiastes says, Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. We just read this verse a little bit ago, talking about the, the, um, where the teacher breaks away from the perspective of a king. Again, people look at this advice and they will say, oh yeah, this is a good Bible verse to show that it's good to be an obedient citizen. It applies to American governments today, right? You should, uh, you should be good to your leaders because they're in charge of you. It's what God wants. But remember the reason that they said, don't stand up for a bad cause for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? In other words, don't stand up to the leader. You'll wind up getting killed. That's the whole problem, right? Is don't, don't, like, don't make him angry. Just, just keep a low profile and everything will be okay. That's, that is, or at least as okay as it can be in this meaningless life that we all live. There is another piece of wisdom within this framework that the teacher offers where it says, look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Oh, that is, uh, now we know that Debbie Downer could not have wrote, written uh, the uh, Ecclesiastes because there ain't no way a woman would write that. That's clearly the perspective of a straight man in a hetero marriage. That's like, that's the other, those other proverbs that we read too, where you, you have uh, husbands expressing the, the deep challenges uh, of marriage. If we had more uh, female perspectives in these texts, you would surely hear uh, more complaints, or you would probably see those, uh, th- this advice flipped right here. But again, this is the idea. Like, I have seen interpreters and preachers jump through hoops to try to make this sound not like what it's actually saying. But the way we've been looking through the teacher's advice so far, I think we can look at it from a safe distance. We can try to understand where the teacher is coming from. Avoid trouble. Avoid stuff that will make your life more painful than it has to be. And then we can decide what we want to do with that perspective. So the, the, uh, it gets even darker in a lot of Ecclesiastes' reflection. So here's, here's a, a turn that it takes uh, in reflecting on just the value of life. So uh, the teacher says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I, and I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are, who are alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. He also says, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. 
that is hard to grapple with, a perspective that followers of Jesus had over the centuries, one that I embrace, that places the value of life a lot higher than does the teacher here. So how do we make sense of these kinds of statements? There is another one that the teacher adds. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. Anyone who is among the, the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Wait a second. So now it seems to be, the teacher seems to be saying the opposite. You know you're in wisdom literature when right next to each other you can see uh, contrasting or conflicting advice on the same topic. But even then, right, even though the, the teacher seems to be speaking speaking from the opposite side of that evaluation. It's all coming from the same underlying place, right? It's, this, is the, this is true because the same destiny awaits all of us. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun." This is, uh, do, you, do you get the challenge, right, that, that we're dealing with throughout this book? There is a, there's a story that um, often philosophers have reflected on that touches on some of the same key issues that the teacher is bringing up in Ecclesiastes. You may be familiar with the, the ancient Greek myth of Sisyphus. So Sisyphus was uh, someone who was, because they cheated death in, in this ancient Greek myth, uh, he was punished to roll a stone up a hill for eternity. So he would roll the stone all the way to the top, and then when he got there, the stone would roll back to the bottom, and then he would go back down to the top and do it again. He would do that over and over for eternity. That, uh, that story throughout the centuries has been uh, a, a test case or a, a context for study for a lot of philosophers to try to debate and discuss what the meaning of life is. There is um, a philosopher, an absurdist philosopher, not an absurd philosopher, an absurdist philosopher. So that is that's a, a school of thought that tries to make sense of the absurdity, the apparent absurdity that is life, who actually says... We must one must imagine Sisyphus happy. So part of the debate here involves like, well, like we often will look at Sisyphus in that story and be like, that sounds absolutely miserable for eternity that that is what he'll have to go through. And what some of these perspectives offer is they say, no, no, you have to think about it that rolling the stone up the hill, you know, that's meaning in and of itself. So when Sisyphus is doing that, he's finding meaning in that path. There's an additional related but somewhat different perspective that argues, no, no, no. Once Sisyphus realizes the absurdity of the situation and once Sisyphus realizes there is no meaning to what he's doing, then he is truly free to add in whatever meaning he wants to, to what he's doing. That we can, he can roll up the hill and find it as well. I think, I wonder if those perspectives are consistent with some of the things the teacher is sharing throughout Ecclesiastes. But I would also add that we should be free and in fact encouraged to ask ourselves, is that perspective right? So the, and if that makes you nervous to say, should I be challenging the perspective of this very wise person that this book of the Bible seems to be praising? It's helpful to remember how uh, the different ways wisdom literature can work in the Bible. 
So it's actually pretty normal for wisdom literature to have characters with extended takes that are bad theology. Consider Job. So if you remember, Job actually has a lot of similarities in overall structure to the book of Ecclesiastes. There is a frame narrator. There are several different voices throughout the book that are offered. Many of them are ones that we acknowledge are bad takes. Then there's a frame narrator that returns at the end and offers an epilogue at the end of the story that makes that allows us to make sense of all of the takes that were offered earlier in the book. So remember the, the premise of the, the book itself is that uh, the Satan and the, an accuser in God's court says that the only reason Job is righteous is because he's got the good life and that if his life wasn't good, he wouldn't praise God. So Satan then takes away, he breaks Job's life. He breaks him down and takes away almost everything that is meaningful to Job. And Job then uh, offers a series of reflections. Job, Job has friends who come to him and offer their perspectives on why he's in the plight that he's in. You can basically, some, it's 40 chapters of basically the friends offering the perspective, look, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Bad things have obviously happened to you. You must have done something bad. And Job's response actually does not challenge that underlying premise. His response is, no, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm good. So something here is absurd or God is wrong or God is not fair. That is the take that they're all debating with each other. Then the epilogue comes and there is a, a voice in the story that says, you're all wrong. You're talking about things you don't know anything about. There are bigger things going on than what you can fathom. So it's from Job's extended reflections that we again get some of these passages that sound beautiful. And we say that must be good theology, right? We sing a song that I, I love how it sounds. It goes, you know, you, you, we have sung it here together, right? You give and take away, right? You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name, right? That comes from Job where it says the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. This is the, the challenge, though, with, this, with uh, interpreting it this way. Job says this during one of his extended rants on the premise that he, cannot have, he has not done anything wrong. So uh, it must be God who is unfair. He's actually criticizing God in this case to say, you give and you take away. You are causing both the good and the bad because it can't be me because I'm not doing anything bad. Right, but we have we've taken it to sound like a, little, a lot more beautiful than it actually is. So Christine and I, whenever we sing this song together here, we often joke like, "How can I sing this and still be theologically accurate?" The story of Job itself says God's not the one who took all of those things away from Job. The Satan did in the story. So I was go, "You give and the Satan takes away. You give and systemic injustice takes away." Right? That's that's putting the appropriate framework on it. It's, it's that perspective that we should actually hold on to when we're thinking about, okay, what is the teacher talking about here? How do we deconstruct the teacher's wisdom and make sense of it for our own context? So that gets us to the last part of what we'll be talking about, which is what is the point of putting this book in the Bible, right? If, it, if, if there are extended takes that I would argue, are questionable, things that we should challenge, things that we should directly wrestle. Why is it that this, uh, this book ended up in the Bible? In order for it to end up in the Bible, the, uh, this, 
the, this book, again, like had to survive over time a series of debates among God's people to say in the canonization process, right? The process of God's people deciding, hey, what's going to be in our text and what's not? This one made the cut. So we should ask ourselves, how did it make the cut? Why? And that will be very helpful in understanding how to make sense of this book overall and get the most value out of it. It ended, if you look back on what documentation we do have about the debates about the value of Ecclesiastes and why it belongs in the canon, the, uh, the communities that made these decisions, they really latched onto the perspective of the frame narrator in the epilogue of the book. So now let's go to the epilogue of the book where we hear for the last time in the book that statement, the purpose of humanity. Here is what the frame narrator says. After saying, like, we've listened to everything the teacher says, what the teacher says is wise and true and good. And the, the, the frame narrator says, of, of, uh, of making many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body, which, of course, Bible scholars love to hear. And then he says, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep God's commandments, for this is the purpose of humanity. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. What a lot of interpreters who really saw the enduring value of this book have argued is that this should be the lens through which you look through everything else we've read so far that the teacher says. What the teacher is doing, what the teacher is talking about is true from an experience in which death is the equalizer that ends everybody no matter what. It's valuable to hear that perspective. Even so, in the face of the absurdity, the appropriate response from the frame narrator's perspective is to do the right thing anyway. Because God will judge. You will do the right thing anyway and trust that no matter how absurd it is, God is taking care of it. This also frees us up to, to listen to or to think about righteousness a little differently than we do, right? The, the book of Job also in the epilogue describes Job as righteous. For the entire time, he's offering all of the takes that he's offering. And this book ends up describing the teacher's reflections positively in the same way. And what you realize is that righteousness is not having a happy or positive perspective on the absurdity that you experience in the world. Righteousness is not being theologically right, according to these authors. Righteousness is doing the right thing anyway, regardless of the absurdity. That's why Job is praised in the book of Job, and that's why the teacher is praised here as well. Uh, throughout the book, it, it also looks like the teacher, at the very least, has no concept uh, of anything that could happen after death. In some cases, it seems like the teacher actively opposes any concept of anything happening uh, in the, like, after you die. But the frame narr narrator trusts that despite the absurdity, that God will actually bring justice into the world and make, make things right. And that gives us a little hint that perhaps the frame narrator is aware of a world or maybe a scenario in which uh, everything that is wrong will be corrected. Maybe not in this life, but maybe if not in this life, in the world to come, maybe. It's not very clear, right? But at the very least, you get a glimpse 
that perhaps there is something more, something beyond death that allows us to us as readers today to have a better perspective about what the teacher is reflecting on. Uh, earlier I said that the, uh, that New Testament writers don't quote from Ecclesiastes at all uh, in, in the New Testament. And, um, the, and so one of the things that does come up, scholars kind of hint at, is that maybe, perhaps, there's one allusion to a key idea that occurs in Ecclesiastes. Maybe you recognize it. The Apostle Paul brings it up. Uh, in an extended discussion in 1 Corinthians 15, where he actually says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And actually, in context here, he's quoting Isaiah. So he's, he's quoting a, um, a prophetic voice that is judging uh, that community's uh, situation. But uh, some scholars have wondered if maybe Paul has the idea of Ecclesiastes in mind. Now, just like we did for the teacher, where every time he said something, we tried to follow his own logic to see why would he say something like that. What does Paul offer as his reason? He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That actually, I think, is meeting Ecclesiastes, meeting the teacher where the teacher is at. But of course, Paul has a different vantage point than the teacher, doesn't he? This is a part of an extended discussion for Paul where he encountered the risen Jesus and he's talking to a community of people who have encountered the risen Jesus and they are discussing how the life of Jesus, the life and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It changes their vantage point on how they understand meaning in this world. For the Apostle Paul, the purpose of humanity is not to eat and drink and be happy. And his encounter with the risen Jesus is what shapes his view of death. We actually read both the teacher and Paul better when we let the full force of the teacher's words stick with us in that sense, right? When you recognize that that's the vantage point that the teacher is coming from, that the teacher does not share the same perspective that we who have encountered the risen Jesus do. But... Remember, the teacher did say that looking out into the world, seeing justice and oppression, that that stuff is absurd. That, and we would say, yes, that's exactly right. The injustice and oppression and poverty in the world is unfair. We should not interpret the teacher's words in any way to soften that that's what he's saying. It is not compatible with who God is. It is absurd. So when faced with suffering and meaninglessness, we shouldn't offer trite wisdom like, um, well, bad things happen for a reason. And I'm sure that one day you will understand the good that came out of this bad. Or you're a very good person. You put good out into the world. So I'm sure that this thing that's bad can't be that bad or whatever it is will go away very easily. The teacher knows not to offer trite wisdom like that. And the Apostle Paul doesn't either. Life is absurd. Injustice is absurd. But the appropriate response is to do the right thing anyway, because death is not the end of the story. 
In light of Jesus, I'd go beyond the teacher and say injustice and despair and death are not circumstances to meet with resignation, as the teacher does. They are forces to resist with all our might. Death is not an opposite balancing force to life, as the teacher says, to everything there is a season. That's not how it works. For the Apostle Paul and those who've encountered Jesus, they say life triumphs over death. And God's judgment shows that it can overwhelm the forces of evil with unstoppable power of God's life-giving spirit. That is our vantage point when we look through the words of Ecclesiastes. Now, in our time together, we'll engage in communion, where we actually reflect on this centerpiece of Jesus's death and his resurrection and the meaning and purpose that our community gets from it. We reflect on this together in the words from scripture, for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.